When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get started with the show, quick word. Book Riot Live's coming up November 12th and 13th in New York City, a two-day Book Riot event. We're going to be recording a live version of this show, also Get Booked, also all the books, but also we're going to have a whole bunch of great guests, Walter Mosley, Mara Wilson. You can go to bookriotlive.com. The complete schedule is up right now. Tickets still available. You can get $20 off your weekend pass with offer code WHEELHOUSE. That's one word. You also can get Saturday only and Sunday only tickets if you don't want to or can't commit to the full weekend. Come visit with us. Come talk to us. Um, come have a good book nerd time. We're going to have vendors. We're going to have signings. There's going to be books to buy, bookish stuff to have, and all sorts of fun activities. So go to bookriotlive.com now. Get your ticket. Offer code wheelhouse. 20 bucks off. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 180. We're recording on Thursday, October 20th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Of course, you were off the one, the the biggest, uh, you know, I keep saying- It always happens. It always happens. I mean, I think Dylan winning the Nobel is the biggest book story of the year, um, but just not not necessarily because of who he is or his body of work or anything like that, but all the kerfluffle mm-hmm. yes. around it. Um, and we'll get some follow-up there in a minute. Did, did you want to, do you have two cents on Dylan? I guess we could wait because yeah, we have a follow-up you know, story. Yeah, I have, I have a few cents okay. on Dylan. I'm relatively indifferent to this. Like I deeply believe that music is poetry and poetry is literature and that all of the sniffing that I saw about like, why would you give it to a musician when Philip Roth exists in the world is crap. Uh, so on on that respect, I think it's really cool to see a musician win um, and someone whose music has been important. But I don't think he's the most important. And I also think that uh, the Nobel Committee's record of giving prizes mostly to white guys is not awesome. Uh, and as you and Amanda, I listened to part of the show last mm-hmm. week and as you and Amanda discussed, like the, I think that there were better and perhaps more deserving uh, recipients. Not to say that Bob Dylan does not deserve it or should not be recognized for the role and importance of his work. But uh, I think there's some snobbery in the reactions to him. And then there's some very valid criticism about the function that the Nobel Prize Committee plays and the function that they could uh, play. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mostly don't care. Mm-hmm. But well, people wanted your two cents too, so I, we we needed to give you a spot there. I am surprised. I have to say that I'm not surprised by the amount of critique or criticism. I guess however you want to categorize what's going on around it, that so much of it is more category category arguments rather than mm-hmm. individual award. You know, like this person, they're concerned about music and lyrics and all that stuff more than they are about. Uh, another white dude, and what's the purpose of this award, and blah, 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 which I, as I said last week, I think is a much more compelling 
argument. Uh, yeah, the fervor of the defense of Dylan is really interesting to me too. Like, um, I check one of the general inboxes for mm. Book Riot uh, newsletter responses, and uh, some people were very angry at you for suggesting that anyone other than Bob Dylan uh, should have won, or that his whiteness and maleness could have had anything to do mm-hmm. with uh, with the position that he was in to get the award. And so the the defense has been interesting to me too. Um, I think I would have liked to see it go to someone else, um, but you know I can live with it. I'm, right. I'm super. I can super live with a musician winning this award. I think we do need to have more conversations about how music is a kind of literature. Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk more about Dylan in just a minute because there's a follow up story to it. Um, but let tell me. Let's do our first sponsor. Our first sponsor this week is Playster. If you have not heard of it, Playster is the world's first all in one entertainment service. So you don't have to be patching together your ebook, audiobook, music, movie, TV shows, and games anymore. Playster has all of them. It gives you unlimited access to millions of titles for one flat monthly fee. So that's right. You can get unlimited audiobooks and ebooks. There's no restrictions. There are no credit systems. They also have movies, TV shows, games. The service is accessible through all web browsers. Playster also has Android and iOS apps, so you can use it on virtually any device. And and there's also an offline mode that lets you save your favorites for on-the-go reading when you're not around internet access. Sign up today to get a free 90-day trial using our special promo code BOOKRIOT90. That's all one word, BOOKRIOT90, at Playster.com and get unlimited access to ebooks, audiobooks, music, movies, and more. Again, playster.com or download the Android or iOS app for you know whatever device you're using. Again, the offer code is BOOKRIOT90. You get a 90-day trial. Okay. Um, we got some follow-up. There's a lot of follow-up. There's a lot of... Let's do something uh, nerd statty first. And this, okay. I, I'm springing this one on you. So oh. <laughs> I'm looking at sales. Last week's sales, Publishers Weekly uh, via BookScan. Um, and we've talked before about paperback sales versus mass market paperback sales versus, and then also the other wrinkle of movie tie-in versions. Mm -hmm. So I was noticing that right now, the regular trade paperback of Girl on the Train, the movie tie-in trade paperback of The Girl on the Train, Mm -hmm. and the mass market movie (laughs) tie-in version of The Girl on the Train are all leading their, are one or two in their respective charts. Okay. So, and they were all on sale last week. And so we have the the regular trade paperback that has the original cover from the hardback. Uh-huh. We have the same trade. We have a trade paperback with a movie, and then a mass paper, mass make it mass market paperback with the movie. So my question is, and I, I'm not going to ask you for a specific number because that's impossibly hard. Even though I'd, <laughs> I'd like to see a squirm about it, but which one do you think sold the most? Just out of those three choices, which one do you the think sold the most? Trade paperback with the movie cover. That is incorrect. Uh, but close. It's it's actually trivially different from number two. Um, it the movie tie-in trade paperback sold thirty nine thousand six hundred copies last week. Holy cow! One hundred seventy five thousand years to uh, year to date. Year okay. To date. And then hot on the heels is the movie tie-in mass market paperback, mm-hmm. which sold thirty eight thousand units. So it's about two thousand. You know, so the regular cover trade paperback yep. is the leader by by a wide margin sixty five thousand units last week. <sighs> Yeah, almost. I wonder double. how many. I wonder if the pool is tainted. Like, are, are there more of those in the world? Uh, it it could be that. I mean, in terms of availability bias, so to speak, mm-hmm. where you know there's more of them, so they get p- right. put out in front. I don't know. It's a good question. I would certainly guess that. I mean, the pub dates are all around the same. 
July 2016 for the trade paperback with the original title, August 2016 for the movie tie and trade, September 2016, uh, in August 2016 for the mass market paperback. Yeah, I just movie wonder, like, so, so you're what saying the, if what the print runs print were, runs were them, a lot yeah. different. Yeah, I don't know, but at the very least, if the print runs are a lot different, that suge- that sort of a cor- correlate to the sales. That means that publishers right. know this breakdown, right? Right, Assuming this isn't an aberration or something. Right. They either know the breakdown or they can kind of engineer it a certain yeah. way. Like, I got to my guess because I thought, like, well, the reason that you put a movie tie-in on it is that movies get much broader mm-hmm. advertising and exposure than books do. So you put a movie cover on a book hoping to get the person who's like, oh, I saw the trailer for that movie. Maybe I didn't even realize it mm-hmm. was a book, but mm-hmm. there's the book and I can buy it. And people, I think anecdotally at least, seem to prefer the feel of a trade paperback over a mass market. Yeah. Um, and I, wonder hmm, what, I don't know what the cannibalism – I mean, I don't know. Like if the only – if the only version available was one of these, right? You know, if you had three alternate Monte Carlo simulation universes where you could, you know, just only which one would sell the most total units by itself? Like, mm-hmm. is the is the mass market paperback cannibalizing the trade paperback with the original cover? Vice versa? Who knows what's going on there? That's yeah. also a tricky one. What we need is a control group where we just get a we just get a bookstore to do stuff like this. So we put <laughs> the trade paperback. <laughs> Of the movie version next to the regular paperback cover in equal number, side by side. And just how many how many do you sell? How many more do you sell? Being able to futz around with these things and like mess with displays yes. and conduct experiments on unwitting consumers is like the number one reason I wish we had a bookstore. Yeah, that's right. It's just one big, uh, one big uh, Petri dish mm-hmm. to do stuff. Because, you know, have a big stack versus, you know, stack them this way, covers out, all that kind of stuff. So that that's one... Um, that's one thing I was going to throw at you too. Here, I got. An, you might have seen me tweet about this morning. Um, Stephanie Anderson, who's uh, yeah, uh, on this. Twitter, you saw this, so you know this stat already. So I can't quiz you with it. She was. I, I don't know if she was at a conference or what, but she tweeted out this really interesting statistic about wh- what percentage of books bought by libraries either get zero or one checkout. Zero or one. Did you see the number? It's most right. Well, no, it's it's nineteen percent. Nineteen percent get zero or one. You thought it was most, boy. I guess I. I don't know. I. I thought that number seemed insanely high. One in five books only get checked out once at most. That isn't that a misappropriation? Like, what is happening there? What's going on? Why do why do almost why do twenty percent of books not get checked out? That's weird. I think that's weird. I I mean, I really would have guessed it was going to be higher because attention, like in any given year, attention clusters around really just a couple dozen big titles. Yeah, but that's in the life of a book. It gets checked out. I mean, it's it, what's the justification for buying? I mean, do they can you predict that? I, I don't know. It seems weird. Like, as, as hurting, I guess, as lo- a lot of libraries are for budget, that 20% of their budget is essentially wasted for collection. I mean, I get, I don't know. Maybe availability yeah, I mean, is a I value in itself. It I, seems yeah, weird. I think the availability is a value. And some of the job of stocking a library, like the job of stocking a bookstore, is not just to give the customers what they already know they want, but to make available to them something that they might not know about. But if they about, don't check it out, does it matter? Yet. I mean, I don't know. That's weird. I, 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 was, I was surprised by that. I, I was surprised. I was expecting like 5%. One out of 20 you know, they just don't huh. know what people want to, they don't either, I guess one of two things is true. Either they don't know what people want to check out and that's just the error rate and whatever, or B, they know that some of the books aren't going to check out and they buy them anyway. 
or they hope. Like I'm, I'm sure all of this goes into it, right? Because librarians mm. are just humans too, who like can Wait, have what? all of library. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean most of them <laughs> right, yeah. uh, can have all the data and information about like what's selling and what mm-hmm. people are interested in. And they can look at requests that like what's, who's on the hold list, which titles mm-hmm. are looking like they're going to be most popular. And then they can make some guesses, but I'm sure that they also have the, that very human wish of like, I think this is an important book and I'd like to have it on our shelves. And I hope yeah. that, that I can recommend it to someone or I hope that someone will discover it hmm. and read it. And that providing diversity of selections, like a library that only stocks the best sellers is not super useful as a discovery tool or for diversifying mm-hmm. people's reading lives. Um, I really thought it would be higher. I think I'm having some bias from personal experience with um, when I worked for Barnes and Noble, one of the things that we had to do regularly was mm. take around little hand scanners and you scan like everything on the shelf and you look at its 90 day sales record. And if it hasn't sold in the last mm. 90 days, the book goes away. And so, so many books were in that position. Um, That's that it, super interesting. Yeah. That like, if you weren't a classic and so many like book sales are largely driven by backlist, yep. even though frontlist is what we talk about all the time. If you're not a classic that people are just buying perennially, um, or you're not like an Oprah pick, or you're not a title that ends up on one of those paid promotional mm-hmm. spots in the front of the bookstore. If you're just like a mid-list novel that gets released and your Barnes and Noble store gets two copies of it and you just get shelved by your last name in the appropriate section, mm-hmm. more than likely it's not going to sell anything and it's going to get returned in the first 90 days. And then it can't sell because it's not there. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. Which I guess is where the, uh, like, I am not surprised that. Cause 16%. you have more experience of pulling. I, I yeah. guess the difference there, right. Is that bookstores can return the book so that the penalty for them not selling for a bookstore is logistical, but they can return and get their money back. With libraries, they can't, right? I mean, you can't. If something doesn't get checked out, you're like, you can't be like, you know what? We don't want this. Take right. it back. At least I don't think so. Librarians yeah, I guess they could, like, they could sell it at the library yeah, for book a buck, sale, right, but for right. a very small percentage of what they had to pay for it. Um, yeah, I want to hear. We have so many librarians yeah, that listen th- to this show. Tell me more like, about this. I mean, it could be that yeah. that includes multiple copies. So if you got five copies of one book and one of them got checked out three times. I, I don't know. Or do you have to buy, do you buy basically like um, packages of books from a bookseller? And so you get pack-ins. I, I like to know more about this. Is, I mean, this seems, seems super interesting to me that like you go into the library and the 20% of the books you see on the shelves are only going to be checked out once at most. That, that, for some reason that like blows my mind, but I don't know anything about it, which is why I'm surprised, I guess. Um, and if you're a librarian, are you surprised by that number? Did you know that number? Or is it different for you? I'd, I'd like to know that podcast at bookwrite.com. People have been super helpful um, when we've asked for uh, help. Spe- speaking of another follow-up quick thing before we get back to Dylan, uh, as we get back to Dylan, um, I don't have the email in front of me and I don't want to clicky-clack to, to open it, but a podcast listener wrote in just this morning, because I said on the podcast last time, I thought Dylan was probably the most famous person ever to win a Nobel Prize, especially mm-hmm. in literature. You had Barack Obama, won, I mean, in literature, but take out the Peace Prize, which is, you know, statesman. But speaking of statesman, Churchill won the Nobel Prize for literature in 1953. Ah. And certainly, in, I, I would assume in 1953, again, I don't, there's, no, there's no metric for fame that they had in 1953 compare apples to apples to now. Certainly, he was more famous than Dylan, or as equally famous. Yeah. and uh, we will Dylan. have to um, scold Amanda because Churchill mm-hmm. is her boy. I was thinking about that. Notice? She's 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 pink with shame right now somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, well, as soon as she hears, ears are burning right now. 
<laughs> Unless you could just feel the shame sort of descend she can just upon feel, her. We don't live that far away. I'm just radiating. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can beam some shame at her. Um, <laughs> for his histories, I was looking at the Nobel citation. He, he wrote several big histories, but also interestingly noted was his oratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, which also a little bit is relevant to the Dylan thing too, because that's non, you know, it's not books or whatever, um, speeches, speeches, speeches. So I, I, I don't know how I forgot that, um, but I did. But thanks for that's the kind of thing when you have people smarter than you uh, about a topic listening, they can help you out with that. Let's go back to Dylan real quick. So um, Dylan is not responding to the the Swedish Academy. He's not. He just. He's not. They they can't get a hold of him. Uh, it's not even clear that he knows. Um, oh, he knows. He, well, okay, he knows, but it's, but it's not clear that he knows. It's not clear that he knows. Like his official, like Bob Dylan Incorporated Twitter account said, Bob Dylan today won the Nobel Prize. But I'm guessing Dylan's not on, not running his own Twitter feed. <laughs> I just doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would. Um, but he's incommunicado right now. That, uh, yeah, they've reached out to like his business people and his closest friends yeah. and the Nobel committee said that they received warm replies from all of those people. Mm-hmm. But so far, Bob nothing Dylan from is, uh, Zimmerman himself. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's kind of in character. On the other hand, I think it's a huge bag of uh, douchebag. Deeply too, uncool. Deeply, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty uncool. Uh, like you're so cool that you're too. It cool is the ultimate the too Nobel cool Prize. for school. That, like that's, move. And at that point, you're uncool. Yeah. Like, it's. Uh, I'm gonna make noises. About I, this. I sort of. I there's part of me that it. actually likes it, and there's part of me that deeply hates it. <laughs> I, I'm kind of. I mean, like he's not the first one to ever ignore the Nobel Prize. No, committee. no, no, no. Well, uh, and, Pasternak not, didn't take it because he was afraid of getting killed by. The, I mean, right, there's there's like, other reasons he didn't. If you've got some political objections that, like Beckett, or, you're, I think. Yeah, or you are afraid for your life, mm-hmm. that is one thing. But if like you're too cool to acknowledge a major prize giving body saying that your body of work deserves this kind of recognition mm-hmm. and the amount of like the meaningfulness of your work to so many people in the world over the course of several decades. It's like, this just looks like ungrateful and uncool to me. Like at least if you're not going to go have some reasons and make a statement, don't like new phone who dis the Nobel mm-hmm. prize committee. The, I agree with that. Um, I also agree with this part. I agree with myself here, um, which is <laughs> shocking, yeah, which is there is a part of me that likes, I mean, you don't nominate yourself for this award, right? You, right. You, you, you're not, he's not trying, he's not writing. You could, you know that winning the Nobel Prize in Literature is not something that Bob Dylan ever even thought about. You know, it's not even, he didn't get into this business to win Nobel Prize in Literature, right? If you've written a novel, you at least, or a book of poetry or a play, you you think about major literary awards. Not that you ever think it's real, but there, you know what realm you're in. So part like, of me is like- In the quiet of your heart, you hope Yeah, it, or, or yeah. whatever, but you, you know it's there. So part, he didn't ask for it. He, they don't ask you if you want it. They just give it to you. They just, you know, you become, you're subject to them nominating you. And it's, it, that sounds weird to say, but it's true. Like it's, it's a huge amount of like social pressure to, to, to accept it, to go to Sweden and make a speech with that goofy medal around your neck in front of a bunch of white bureau. I mean, I, I, that, that part I understand. The other part I kind of understand is for Dylan, especially, who's always been a chameleon, always been you know, wanting to, to play the things. It's the ultimate resistance of like cultural hegemony to say to the Nobel Prize Committee, nothing. 
Like, but there's part of me that likes that kind of. It's not. I don't even know. I don't know. It's resistance. Like, it is just operating outside the standard norm we have for culture. This is the ultimate sort of. It's almost, It's like knighthood for art. Right. I don't, and if you I, don't like this, if you don't, if you're not interested in the, the 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 framework, the cultural framework built around it, I don't know. There's part of me that that finds that really interesting. I don't know if I like it, but I find it super interesting. I mean, I think this is like a move that James Franco would pull in 40 years. It's like nah, it's James Franco is too much of a narcissist. He, there was no way in a million perf- years. It's like it's so self conscious. Oh yeah, Dylan is always self. I mean, he's a different name. Me. Like he's self conscious. Yeah. There's no I question mean, about it. I'm, it's just like it's self consciously performative, and I think it's like a watch everyone be so impressed that I mean, I'm deeply ungenerous about this response from him, like or this lack of response and the things we can project onto it, or the things I'm choosing yeah. to project onto it. But it. I, I don't know. As a person, I have very little appreciation for like the self-conscious life as performance art. I'm so coolness, and this is just poking all those buttons. Well, as even I, I mean, the, again, we have no idea what the reasons for him not doing it. It, it. I don't know. Is it I'm so? It is interesting that our both have a same reaction of like this is a I'm a too cool for this move, which yeah, is like, also a weird projection, right? Like, like he's a he's a smart and interesting guy. He must be aware on some level of his place in history. Mm -hmm. And if, if the thing is like what you're saying, which I think is possible that he's not interested in this framework of evaluation or awards. This is not a thing that ever motivated him Mm -hmm. with his work. And therefore it just doesn't matter. Like say that at least use the moment to say a thing about what your work is about. Yeah, I don't know. I think for Dylan, the most interesting response is nothing. Just knowing what I know about his work. Like this is, I I, I was initially really surprised, but the more I think about it, the more it makes a lot of, I, I'm, the more I'm less surprised about it. And I don't know that it's going to go, I don't know that there's going to be like an empty chair. It, I, you know, it's it's not too long before they have the ceremonies and whatever. But as try as they might, I cannot imagine him him getting up there and giving a speech like you know, like you see Nobel Prize winners do that, and often very beautiful, interesting, provocative speeches. I I can't see him doing it. Like, there's a story that came out, you know, and there's a million Dylan stories coming out, and a lot of them are interesting, and some of them aren't, but one of them is like, he's performing at the White House, um, and so, he, so he'll do stuff like that, right? So that's another wrinkle. Like, it's not that he just, like, sort of rejects power and all of it. Right, and he trapping. hasn't, like, J.D. salinger Like, yeah. he's not hiding yeah. in a Yeah, he plays house his gigs and whatever. Yeah. But he goes and he plays for the president, uh, President Obama. And, and he doesn't stick around for photo. He goes and shakes President Obama's hands, tips his hat, and he, he takes off. Like, it's very, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's weird that we require, I guess the more I think about it, it's weird that we require artists to genuflect before the Nobel Committee. Like, why, why do we require that? Is it the money? Is it the prestige? Like, I, I guess that's the, more, that's the thing that came out. I've been thinking about a lot this week in this context of like, okay, it's his prerogative. Like, I, whatever. I, I guess it's sort of not unlike, I guess, some of our critique about someone else should get it. It does feel like wasting an opportunity not to do something with it. Yeah, that's what I think it is. Like, I I don't think it's so much that we require them to genuflect before the committee, but for almost anyone else winning this award who is not as famous as Bob Dylan, this is an opportunity uh, to share your art with a much wider group of readers or listeners or people who are interested in science or like whatever the thing is that you have won the Nobel Prize 
for. Like, even if you're Toni Morrison and you go win Mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize, it's a level of notoriety that you can't really achieve elsewhere. It's a seal on your book that makes it more appealing Mm -hmm. to a reader who's just, you know, hanging out in a bookstore looking for something to read. It's it is a huge opportunity to put the work that you have poured your life into out for a bigger audience. And I and this, I guess, kind of feels part of the reason it feels ungrateful to me is Bob Dylan, like knows that he doesn't have to do that. Yeah, he he doesn't. He he doesn't doesn't need it. it. He's in an extraordinary privileged position that he doesn't Right. He doesn't Everyone, need the notoriety. He doesn't need the million bucks. He doesn't need the kudos and the tenured position at UC Davis or whatever else, you know, the trappings mm-hmm. that come along with it, which is kind of a big middle finger to the academy. I, I sort of I sort of think they're getting what they deserve a little bit out of this. They should. I mean, you, if you really know, I mean, you can't be surprised. Like Amanda, and I hadn't thought about this, and I don't know if it's hard to know, but she was saying that the Nobel was doing this to sort of relevant, get headlines, sort of on so forth. If that's true, then he's really shoving in their face. I'm not going to show up mm-hmm. to your thing. I'm not even acknowledging right. your thing. It's like it's a huge snub, an enormous screw you. Um, and sometimes I like I like enormous screw you to positions of power because the Nobel Prize Committee. I mean, let's be honest, they kind of deserve a middle finger, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but one one, one warm of color is one. That that's that's absurd. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep tracks of, I guess this is a story that you just, uh, nothing's happened. The next news will be, he says something, uh, and I guess once the award ceremony is, is over, and he, if he hasn't shown up, then the story's kind of over. He's not yeah, going to say anything. Yeah, just go away. Just sort of go away. All right, let's see. Where, where do you where do you want to go next? Why don't you choose something? I want to something? follow up with prize winners doing things that are awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of someone who is using their yes. award to do interesting stuff. Uh, right. Tell me who, about like, this one. Claudia Rankine, who wrote Citizen, the book of poetry uh, that won the uh, National Book Award in 2014, was, uh, we talked, I guess, about a month ago that she was one of the recipients of the MacArthur Genius Grant mm-hmm. this year. So she uh, got, she and the, all of the other winners each received $625,000 from the MacArthur Foundation. And that money comes with no strings or stipulations. You can do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is using hers to found something called the Racial Imaginary Institute. It's um, a group of thinkers who are dreaming up what she calls a presenting space and a think tank all at once. Uh, it's like a think tank plus art gallery development space, essentially, where artists and writers can wrestle with race. Um, she wants it to be a place where they can show art, where they can host dialogue have readings and talk about the ways in which the structure of white supremacy in American society influences our cultures. Uh, She wants it to be based in Manhattan, uh, where the discussions can begin and also where it can be seen as in the same playing field as other major galleries. And um, she says she knows that our art galleries might not be altering legislation, but that culture really does determine what we think and how we think about it. And she's interested in whiteness. Um, she is interested in helping people to talk about and understand that whiteness is not inevitable and that white dominance is not inevitable. This piece from The Guardian that we're going to link to in the show notes is just packed with fantastic quotes. Um, And she says one reason that she wants her center to exist is because she went into a bookstore at the LA Contemporary Museum of Art and she asked them for books on whiteness. And the man was like, what? Mm. And she said, well, you know, books that address the ways in which white contemporary artists deal with whiteness, interrogate it, analyze it, work in ways that push up with constructions of whiteness. And he's like, I don't know what you mean. 
so she had similar conversations in multiple other bookstores. They would have books on African-American art, but they never had anything on deconstructing race in general or on whiteness in particular. Um, so she wants to do that hmm. and to help American artists and writers and the public uh, in a broader sense start thinking about whiteness and how it is connected to the underbelly of things that have been kept from the American public oh. about, um, you know, for very good, good, um, for very understandable reasons in propping up white supremacy hmm. um, and the, all the consequences of that. Um, it's really fascinating. Um, probably the most interesting thing I've heard of anyone doing. With with, you know, yeah, I, I can't think of any. I mean, again, I haven't followed like what the cellular biologists and stuff have done. I have to admit, mm, with yeah. MacArthur Genius Awards or even the playwrights or performance arts of that nature. But from the literature side, very interesting um, stuff to do. I mean, she's unequivocally right about yeah. the lack of uh, interrogation of how whiteness is put together and upheld and performed. Um, you know, I one one thing that goes around even on bookish Twitter from time to time is like a thing that happens where. You know, if a, a book that's featuring all white, uh, all, all, you know, this is what Morrison said, very, you know, all American books are about race at some level. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know about other countries, but I'd imagine, too, if it's not race, it's ethnicity or religion or your cultural differences gender. of different kinds, gender. Um, and, you know, this election cycle, like, I don't want to get super, like, overtly rah-rah election political, but... Boy, if there's ne a moment has ever been primed to take a look at w how whiteness is put together and what it cares about and how it's reified, and um, now is an interesting time uh, to do it. You know, like, and interestingly too, you know, it made me think of this other quote. I, I think I don't know if, if Coates said it in uh, Between the World and Me or just said it somewhere else. You know, he said like, "There's nothing wrong with black people that the end of white supremacy wouldn't fix." You know, it's it, right. that that's that's the 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 fount is white supremacy. The fount is not you know. Uh, uh, housing legislation, right? I mean, that's that's a symptom, not a cause. Um, and the thing that needs to be fixed is white supremacy. And the other thing is that probably, I think he said that he doesn't think black people can solve it for white people, that white people need to solve it for themselves and figure it out. And it, it makes sense to me that the really the only avenue to do that would be overt thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Like That's the only way that can happen, right? Um, certainly my own understanding of my my race has happened in reading and class kinds of discussions. Um, and this is an effort to get outside of the academy and do that. I, in terms of like the actual logistics of this, I'm not exactly sure what she's imagining here. Are you? Like, what is it, are these classes? Like, are they grants? Are they fellowships? It, I guess it could be a lot of different. Like, an institute yeah, could be a lot of different. It feels to me things. like it's the beginning of a, yeah. a thing. Like, part of the magic of working on something like this is just, I imagine that she will. Like what her process will be now is like getting a bunch of artists mm -hmm. and writers and thinkers together and having some like we have this space and we have this money. Yeah. So what can we do with it? Interestingly, she's not partnering with the university. Doesn't seem like she's not going to make it part of Columbia or NYU. Like right. I'm just thinking of New York places, new mm -hmm. school, and mm -hmm. doing something like that. Like it's a non non academic. Yeah, and institution. Uh, it's going to take money, more than 600 grand. I, yeah. I guess, I know it just depends on what they're going to do with it. Yeah, and perhaps they can get outside funding or no. donations. Like, if this thing works, or at least if the beginning of mm -hmm. it is something that's appealing and good, people will donate money to support it. And I think it's, I'm happy to see it not oh, connected yeah. to something as bureaucratic as an academic institution. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to do this thing, which is, it looks like a wholly original thing to me. Um, and if you know of other institutes that are like this or other artists that are working on things like this, I would love to know about it. Um, you need 
freedom to blow the doors wide open. Yeah, I guess equivalent, like in a in a in a longer timeline, something like the Schomburg Center in Harlem for you know it's a museum and cultural center mm-hmm. of, of, for African American history. That would be, I guess a, I guess a, not a mature is the wrong way of putting it, but a more fully featured, armed and operational yeah. battle station. Um, yeah, but for whiteness. There's something a little farther down in this piece that I I think maybe gives us a hint um, about what she might be looking to do. Um, she says she's interested in the views of somebody like Jonathan Franzen. I thought, I thought she, that was interesting, too. She acknowledges the serious uh, seriousness of his writing. And here's the quote from her is, uh, he said something like, I can't write about people I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that to me is more complex. So why don't you know these people? What choices have you made in your life to keep yourself segregated? How is it one is able to move through life with a level of sameness? Is that conscious? Is segregation forever really at the bottom of everything? When he says something like that, I find that really interesting as an admittance to white privilege that he can get through his life without any meaningful interaction with people of color, mm-hmm. um, which is very similar to the conversations that we had and that we saw on line after Jonathan Franzen first said that thing. Right. Um, and if you're wondering what we're talking about, there was an interview earlier this year where an interviewer asked him, why aren't there any people of color in your books, any women of color? And he basically said, well, like, I can't write about what I don't know. And I've never been in love with a woman of color. Um, and there was a lot of like, how come you've never, you, you don't know any black people? And you have to be in love um, with someone, right? That's also right. Story. And you have to be in love with someone to write about. And there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. and problematic stuff to take apart in that. But like, I would guess maybe Claudia Rankine wants a minute with Jonathan mm-hmm. Franzen or wants to make a room where you can put the Jonathan Franzens, the white writers who have a lot of privilege or the white artists who have a lot of privilege and a lot of power and who make the pieces of culture that white people pay attention to mm-hmm. and say like, look, you need to interrogate this in your work if we're going to, if white people are going to fix this because it's not up to Claudia Rankine and black people to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if culture is important and it is, uh, then it is going to take white writers and artists, you know, making those changes in the pieces of culture they create. Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm going to watch that super closely and see yeah. what um, develops there. Um, so those of you in New York, pay attention. And uh, once we hear this stuff going on, we'll try to let you know as best we can. Yeah. Uh, we better do a sponsor. Penguin Random House Audio is back. So, so it's, it's prime. I don't know. It's I feel like it's a good audiobook time of year. There's cooking. If we're coming up on the holidays. There's a lot of traveling, of course. Mm-hmm. And basically, audiobooks are the easiest way to get books in your in your ear holes, right? That, that, that well, I, I don't know how else you get. Well. I don't know how how else you get them into your ear holes. Honestly, uh, it's very very different, like a wax cylinder. I, not not really it's the sure. easiest way to read and yeah. multitask. But it is. We've got a big. Um, project this weekend. We're making a bunch of cookies because the uh, Ames' school is having a cookie. They're making a cookie house for their harvest festival, a house oh, made of cookies. The best. So uh, also, I just needed to talk about that for a minute. But we're also going to spend <laughs> some time in the kitchen together, you know, making a whole uh, a whole, a whole a phalanx of, of cookies. Um, and I thought about like, could, could, could we spend some time together listening to an audiobook? And this is what PRH Audio is suggesting is like, think about it. You know, Christmas is coming up. Um, uh, uh, you know, we're going to get Hanukkah. We're going to get uh, a Christmas, Thanksgiving. Uh, and a lot of these holidays, a lot of food involved. I don't know if it's because it's cold and that's what we do when it's cold. You know, uh, you can spend time around the hearth, you know, making carbohydrates. Um, but especially, you know, if you do a lot of the cooking by yourself or with someone else that, you know, want to spend some time with, but you're not going to talk, you know, for six hours while you're making all the food, try out an audiobook. You know, here, here's this, she, 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 uh, 
she suggested, uh, Michelle, I think when we were talking about this the other day, that maybe we could start with some kids' books and picture books. And there are some stuff out there that's interesting, too. But if you're an adult, they've got a couple of uh, suggestions for you. Cooking for Picasso, The City Baker's Guide to Country Living, are great cooking memoirs that you can listen to. They also suggest by uh, someone's going to be at Book Riot Live, Mara Wilson's Where I Am Now. She's funny. She's smart. So, it's, you know, it's entertaining. Makes it whistle while you work. I uh, Kind of the attitude there. Um, so you can go to tryaudiobooks.com slash cooking for a free download. Get started listening. Thanks so much to PRH Audio for sponsoring this and uh, the other episodes of the Book Rap Podcast. Okay. Well, well, well. So we do some of this. Uh, da, 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 da. Here, I like this one. I like this one. Sunset Park. Um, you found this. I hadn't seen this before. Yeah, one of the contributors mm. unearthed this and put it on our back channels this week. Um, so the Sunset Park uh, branch of the Brooklyn Public Library is getting a makeover. Um, it's going to house a new and improved 21,000 square foot library on the lower level, which cool, big library. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the most interesting thing is what's happening upstairs. There will be 49 affordable apartments above that. They are earmarked for uh, low income tenants, including those who qualify for federal housing. Um, Let's see. It says rents for the 39 units will range from 532 a month, which is Studio. Like insanely good for New York. Oh, rent, God. Yeah. Um, to uh, 1272 for a three bedroom. It's not clear what the plans are for the other 10 units, mm-hmm. um, which are marked for some higher earning tenants who are still technically low income, but they will all be below market rate and all of the units will be available via the city's affordable housing lottery. Um, Super interesting. Yeah, it's from Curbed. Uh, there's no details on like how this came to be, which the backstory I would be super interested in. Um, like how did, who decided that this was going to be like part library and part uh, residential building and how that got decided and worked on. I would love to know if you happen to know. Um, please let us know at podcast at bookriot.com. But very cool. Like how awesome to be able yeah, to. Yeah, there's a, there's, I think there's a backstory here. I, I don't know if we talked about this show or maybe it's something that happened even before Book Riot was a thing where, um, and I'm guessing this is how this happened. So it's, it's not this library, but a different one that was in downtown Brooklyn where basically you know, the city has all of these, has these um, lots, right, that libraries mm-hmm. sit on. Like, there's a picture here of the Sunset Park Library. It's a one-story building on a lot in Sunset Park. And my neighborhood in Ditmas Park, the library was similar. And this is valuable, valuable real estate, um, and especially in New York, which is prone to vertical expansion. It seems like a waste of, not, not a waste, but an unused, the air rights unused. Those are lots of value in that air above these single-story um, buildings. And I know there was a deal struck at some point. Now, I don't actually know if it ever got built where one of the downtown libraries in Brooklyn would basically sell the lot to a developer in exchange for basically a a free perpetual lease for the library and built into it was affordable housing. Cool. So like they would buy, we're not going to sell you the lot just to do whatever we with. We need to put the library somewhere and the real estate's so valuable that we can get some leverage to get some other stuff we want for the community, which is affordable mm-hmm. house housing units. Super interesting stuff. Yeah, that's great. So, I'm glad you knew that backstory. Yeah, doesn't sound familiar to you. We must not have talked about it. If we had talked yeah, about it, it so. would ring. It would ring bells. Yeah. Um, yearly income requirements for the building start at twenty two five for a single person, and go up to eighty six thousand dollars for a family of four. I know some of you who aren't privy to New York real estate are going to say, "Wait, that's low income housing eighty seven thousand dollars for a family of four. It is in New York. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Uh, health insurance alone will destroy you. Forget about everything else. 
Um, so that's great. I mean, we need a, a trillion more of it, but you got to start mm-hmm. somewhere. And how great would it be to live on top of the library? No kidding. I've always wanted to live on top of a library. Uh, okay, let's do that. Um, here, here's one I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, sometimes you get these UK folks, they'll say, they'll say truth things that yeah. for whatever mm-hmm. reason, they're not staying in the US. The penguin, I don't actually know too much about where this particular fella, uh, or woman, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, Joanna Pryor, who's a higher up in the Penguin UK division. It's just, she's the managing director of Penguin's general books. In the but UK, I don't know what that, yeah, means. Know what yeah. that means. You, I don't know how this stuff's put together. Oh, we should put a link in the show notes to that flow chart. Did you see that flow chart about the imprints? Oh, yeah, I did see that. We'll that talk about that in a minute. <laughs> put a pin in that for a second. Um, she said, admits, I guess, that Penguin, at least, and again, they're only part of Random House, went all in on ebooks. And it just hasn't panned out, which I haven't heard publishing say before. Well, have you heard the, someone say anything like this? I have not. And actually, the way that she says it in this piece is we lost confidence in the power of the word on the page, which being confident about ebooks and losing confidence in print mm. books are not the same well, that's thing. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that difference. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh. So it's interesting to me, like the framing first is interesting. Like it's getting framed as we screwed up. We went too hard on ebooks. Um, but the quote is, we lost confidence in the power of the word on the page, which was a bad moment. That's so um, weird. That's, which, a, that's a weird, yeah. That's so and, weird. It, and it rings true to me because you think about like 2012, 2013, even early 2014, like so much of publishing was the sky is falling, print is dead. There were all mm-hmm. those hand-wringing editorials everywhere about like what will happen to our bookshelves? Will they be frozen in time? What will happen to the generation of children who grow up without the smell of books? There was there was this real sense that it was either or. And then if ebooks were going to be a thing that would be done at the it would be achieved or occur, it would occur to the detriment of print and that it must also be some sort of value judgment about print. Yeah. If ebooks were good, it must mean that print books weren't as good as we thought they you were. You know, I was I was thinking about this again when I saw I don't know, I think I linked to this story this week sometime in Critical Linking, so I have a couple of days to, to mull it. But I don't know, if you looked as we did, if you were looking at those charts of the growth of ebooks from like 2010 to 2014, you it went to like 22% market share in like 4 years. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And if you're looking at that shape of that curve, I don't know how you can do anything, but I thought it would, I don't, I, I don't know that you could have reasonably said, you know what, this is for whatever, I'm going to magically believe that for whatever reason, this is going to plateau at 28%, which is sort right. of where, how would you have known that? You'd have, you wouldn't yeah, have. Yeah, I think that maybe the, I think it was, the future was unwritten and it was impossible to forecast and we saw a rising tide and we look at the charts. We thought that was the future. So we put it. Right. And I think that's very reasonable. I, it I don't it know. is. Yeah. And she says also here, um, there was a definite moment when we all went shooting after the shiny app thing and spent money on that and invested probably unwisely in products that we thought could in some way enhance the book. And that's true too. Mm-hmm. We did see publishers make a ton of attempts at things. And there was, there like was a lot, a lot of flailing and there's still some flailing about this, but I think this wording and I could be reading too much into it, but I think this wording about like that we were looking for something that could in some way enhance the book is very indicative of Mm. why there wasn't a major publisher success with eBooks or apps so far. Um, If they were looking to enhance books that no, um, or it hasn't been done yet in a way that was good. Um, And 
we've talked for the last three and a half years that we've done this show about so many of the tech-based publisher experiments looking like a failure to understand how people use technology and mm-hmm. what readers really want from technology and from ebooks. And so I think it, I think she sees that they, you know, went all in on these experiments. I would really like a publisher to say, we know that the future is a future that involves a lot of technology. Yeah. We're not betting on print as the best thing ever for the rest of time. We are going to say out loud that a lot of our experiments were bad and we screwed up. Like I want that. Yeah. Um, and there's no, and you know, the, and the, the big digital success hasn't been, ha- I mean, I don't know how you call eBooks a failure when they're 20%, but there's no right, mention and, here of audiobooks, which has been a huge boon. Yeah. And I, I there's this, the like, maybe if we just don't talk about failures, they won't be failures thing is, is just so frustrating to me about this industry in general, and the assumption that a failure must be a bad thing. Like, there were a yeah, lot of bad right. experiences. Well, it's not like Penguin gotta, belly up. It's not like they, right, they, right. They, they sunk the company. Yeah, you got to throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall before you can find something that sticks. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of am discouraged by this of like, we tried a bunch of things. Yeah, and we failed, I am too. That's, I, I hadn't really thought, but you're right. And yeah, we're. Yeah. Yeah, and we're reading failure as an indication that we should stop experimenting yeah. rather than like, okay, well, for every failure, you're like, you're one failure closer to Yeah, we're to back to success. print now. That was fun. Right. We're all yeah, done now. It's, That's it's dumb. disappointing. It, it looks like lack of imagination to me, and that bums me out. Well, and they, they took, and if it wasn't ebooks, they just whiffed badly on a lot of the, look at the, look at the things that did succeed, and publishing hasn't been a part of any of them. Goodreads, Wattpad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just a couple examples right there. Like, look at the what would have been the huge tech-related successes in the like, world of books. Like, they they, they with the Comicsology, the mm-hmm. Amazon scooped up Goodreads and Comicsology, uh, Audible, Amazon scooped. Yeah. I mean, you to say you failed. I think there's also the lack of courage. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's going oh yeah here. yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay. We're gonna do our little app that has a soundtrack. Great, or you know, or whatever. Like, I still can't get a bundle. My paperbacks are still cheaper than ebook. Like, tell me how you figured this out. Because this sounds like it's over, right? I guess that's the other yeah, thing that's yeah, bothering me. Like, this is a post mortem on the world of ebooks. This is ridiculous. You can't give up on ebooks. Are twenty percent? They're like we we lost confidence in the value of the word on the page. You text. It's text. It's right. it's it's read. It's listened to. It's run. That 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 makes sense to me. But the the thing they've completely missed is all the things around the text. Not like adding. Yeah, enhanced ebooks. That that that's garbage. No one cares about that yet. But like the Goodreads thing, the Wattpad, they miss on social. Like all of those things, just complete short sightedness of a different kind. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, now I'm. I wasn't. I didn't think I was this worked up about this, but suddenly you got me worked up about that. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's not. It's not your fault. I like it at least when both of our fur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we oh we we messed this up and we because I, I just. Because this sounds like, well, you know, print is still is our business and it's our future. Well, and this is like, right, this is the thing that publishing does. Like, yeah. We make books. Sure. So what do you do? We make books. And so technology exists. We should make books with technology. Yeah. Um, where, right, like Goodreads was growing and was a big thing for many years before mm-hmm. Amazon scooped them up. There was room. Right, Amazon and, itself. Uh, I mean, just just r- digital distribution online. Right. Uh, yeah. Is- like if if. Penguin random, like if instead of this is a thing that I think about, which is a false equivalence mm-hmm. and I will acknowledge it. But if. The publishers that had backed Bookish uh, had gotten together and used that, like, what, $20 million, $20 million in bucks. development money that they wasted on Bookish. And I am fine saying it was a mm-hmm. waste to go in on an investment in Goodreads or a purchase of Goodreads earlier. 
what they the power that they would have had in that and the way that they would have been supporting the reading community and right building up stuff that happens around books because it's not just the book it's not that the, we're biased that that's a thing you should be in right <laughs> right right it's like it's not just the book but it's the community right. around the books it's the rating a book it's the recommending it to someone it's the t-shirts that people make with their favorite mm-hmm. bookish quotes on them whatever like obviously this is where we sit right. in in how the reading life works but what they could have done with that money or still can Goodreads, do because this sounds like they're they're not going to think about it anymore right like right, this is right. a but like, there's not another Goodreads they can buy. No, I mean, but that doesn't mean the. I just don't believe the digital future has been written, and this is where we. This is it yeah, forever no, now. It's I Goodreads agree, and Amazon no. and Wattpad, and this is it. They were done. I just, I yeah. I feel like we're still too early in the in and the like, in the in the history here. It's like no one wanted my enhanced ebooks, and so now I'm going to take my ball yeah, and go home. Right. Yeah, we jacked up prices on ebooks, and they've te- they plateaued. Well, I guess everyone liked print. I just come on. I just come, yeah. I don't want to go back on that ramp. <laughs> All right. Give me one more sponsor. Let me tell you about our yeah, next sponsor. Get get, get uh, the else. final sponsor this week is a book called And the Monkey Learned Nothing. It's by Tom Lutz. He's on a mission to visit every country on Earth. Me too, Tom Lutz. Yeah. Uh, this book, And the Monkey Learned Nothing, contains reports from 50 of them that describe personal encounters in rarely visited spots, anecdotes from way off the beaten path. Uh, he travels without an itinerary and without a goal, and Tom Lutz explores the Iranian love of poetry, the occupying Chinese army in Tibet, reed dancers in Swaziland, young camel herders in Tunisia, Romanian missionaries in Macedonia, and much more. With an eye out for both the sublime and the ridiculous, Lutz falls regularly into the instant intimacy of the road with random strangers. Uh, And so this is out from the University of Iowa Press. I'm going to read it soon. This sounds terrific. Uh, It's And the Monkey Learned Nothing by Tom Lutz. You can get it wherever books are sold, or we will have a link in our show notes. Cool. That's like factory made for the Shinsuke. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds pretty good. Um, Let's do two quick other things. I I need your help parsing this because this is both something we both are interested in. It's it's very insider baseball. So if you're done with insider stuff, you can stop the show now. Book Expo America is now Book Expo. Mm -hmm. What is what is this? (laughs) What's happening here? So book so so here. Let me tell. Book Expo America is the big. North American trade show for books. We go every year, you know, publishers have booths, editors are there, you can get galleys, talk. Originally, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, I think you know more about this than I do. Originally, it was books, book buy, librarians and book buyers, like institutional book buyers from bookstores and, what, you know, whatever, universities even, would go and see the upcoming books from publishers and make their orders, right? That was the, yeah, the original Yeah, it was idea. originally the American Booksellers Association yes. annual conference. Right. And now it's it's run by ReadPop, which is a big – they run huge events, basically. Um, Comic-Con, all that and stuff. And all that stuff. And now it's become – I guess one thing that's happened is we kind of come, what is it for? Because you can get digital catalogs online now, blah, blah, blah. The sort of the, the necessity of going and sort of flipping through a physical catalog with a sales um, rep from uh, Dutton is not as, I guess, urgent as it once was. And now it's sort of marketing, book bloggers there, publicity, signings, there's talks. It's sort of just a general publicity event now. And it sounds like they're trying to refocus. This is this is the language, so help me parse this. We can put our close reading glasses on. Book Expo will be scaled to focus on what booksellers want most, to discover new titles and authors, to maximize the opportunities to network publishers and peers, and to continue learning best practices for running their businesses. What does that mean? I have a couple interpretations. Yeah, what what, what do you understand this to mean? 
Okay. So the first piece, I think, is that book expo, like it began as the ABA mm-hmm. thing where booksellers went to meet with publishers and like you were saying, learn about upcoming titles and select things for their catalogs. And then it expanded to be a thing that members of the press attended to write about upcoming titles and get galleys and like figure out what the buzz was going to be. In the last several years, it's grown to include bloggers, librarians have been going and BEA has really struggled to define like who qualifies as industry to come for this thing. Um, There have been a lot of interesting shenanigans about like who can register as a member of the press and who has to register instead as a book blogger and sort of this like refusal to acknowledge bloggers as press or to try to institute some arbitrary guidelines about like how what when you get to level up from being a blogger to being a member of the literary press. Um, I think that they uh, that book BEA has been struggling financially for years. Mm -hmm. We've heard a lot about like not being sure if they were going to move it around or if it was making money. Um, They've been trying to focus on international things like there's been a big push to have international publishers involved. And so my first guess, and I think somebody on our staff channel said like, well, maybe taking the America out of it is a nod towards like, we will just be book expo, we will do international things. But if it's about if it's about going back to booksellers, I think then that they want to push um, like bloggers and other readers and the other types of folks who would who have been attending BEA um, or who have been coming. They don't want they don't want want to be for jerks like us. They want your dollars to go to BookCon. They don't want you to go to BEA. I see. (laughs) Like members of the press separate, separate and clarify. Right. A press pass is free. Um, like they're not going to make more money for book expo focusing on getting booksellers to it. That, like, that, this one, this is the language reflect the intention of both the ABA and read to make the show as responsive as possible to the needs of independent booksellers. Yeah. That's so really, that's so weird. I, I think that's disingenuous. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's weird. That, yeah. That like, if you, okay, so sure. But like independent booksellers, have Edelweiss now and they have reps from publishing houses and they can see the catalogs of books that are coming out. They don't really need this. I don't think if you're an independent bookseller and I'm totally wrong, please feel free to let me know. But I don't think they need that, the expo and that connection in the way that pre-internet, it was really valuable um, and important. And there's all sorts of continuing education stuff that happens elsewhere. Um, so I really think, and like we can just all pause and be shocked that I'm ungenerous, <laughs> that they want to push more people to BookCon, which makes them more money mm-hmm. because the tickets are more expensive. Right. So they're going to focus Book Expo narrowly on booksellers and make it less appealing to anybody else. Mm. And this is just the PR framing Mm. uh, to make the booksellers happy, which like maybe not for nothing. This was the statement that was given um, for a press release on the ABA website. So like they're going to position it to booksellers. Well, it is. It it has been and it will continue to be co-sponsored by the ABA. So there's some of the DNA that makes sense that this is. Let's go back to what. Let's go back to the the beginning here of what is this supposed to be? Now, who maybe the ABA is pressuring Book Expo and say, you know what, we're getting a lot of complaints from booksellers that. It's a it's a freaking mess. We're mm. we're trying to get galleys. We're in there with book blog, you know, and librarians. We're trying to get in there and grabbing GEAs. We're, we're trying to get meetings, and it's too big. Like I could see that. Like clear some of sure. the underbrush out, you know that this is that have grown up sort of in the cracks of how the thing is put together, and refocus. Is that's if the ABA is putting money and sponsorship and effort behind it, they want to have a good experience for their independent booksellers. That also, I, I don't know. Is that a more generous reading? I'm not sure. I think it's slightly more generous. Yeah. Um, I just am baffled, like, if they're 
if what's if part of what's going on at least is that they need to make more money mm-hmm. from BEA, then you're not going to do that. Like you can't milk booksellers for no, a whole lot no, more money. No, no. That's not the place. <laughs> That's not the place to go. Though I guess um, if if it was more conducive to booksellers in general, maybe more of them will come. You know, maybe the people will fly from Idaho or you know fly yeah. from Mississippi or you know places that it's, it's harder. You know, it's 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 a it's a trek. It's a yeah. trek. And like, I hope that whatever its new form is does serve. If they're saying it's going yeah. to serve booksellers, I hope that it does serve booksellers. I just think there's more going on here. And part of that more is getting everybody else who's mm-hmm. not a bookseller that they're not going to focus on to give dollars to. Oh, the librarians aren't going to be happy about this. Mm-mm. The librarians aren't going to like this. Well, like this will be interesting to see then what registration looks like mm-hmm. for 2017 BEA. Like, what will it look like to try to register as a blogger? What will it look like? Yeah, because we got a bunch. Of, we have a bunch of people as a go. librarian. Yeah. Are, are there going to be fewer press passes? It seems. Yeah. It seems possible. We better end the show. We're running late here. We'll, we'll oh, get yes. we'll back to this. Okay. We can say this is a Halloweeny story. We can save it for next week. It's a good good yeah, one to slip in there. Uh, that's our show. You can find uh, show notes to this and other episodes of the Book Riot podcast, bookriot.com slash listen. That gives you a full link, a uh, full list of all of our podcasts, and then you can find the navigate to the particular episode from there. What would we, we want to hear about? You know, if you're a bookseller about BEA, we'd like to hear about that. If you're a librarian, we, we need to know stuff about uh, books not being checked out. You know, is that 19% shock you? Is it a problem? Is it, you know, that's a cost of doing business, whatever. We'd also like to know that. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, Book Riot Live, bookriotlive.com. Go get offer code wheelhouse. Thanks to our three great sponsors this week. Uh, and we will talk to you next week. Have a yep, good one. Bye.